This video is part of an audiobook series featuring Narrative Economics by Robert J. Schiller, How Stories Go Viral and Drive Major Economic Events. For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel or my website for downloads. Chapter 2. An Adventure in Consilience For me, thinking about narrative economics has been an adventure in the discovery of consilience. The word consilience, coined by philosopher of science William Wewell in 1840 and popularized by biologist E. O. Wilson in 1944, means the unity of knowledge among the different academic disciplines, especially between the sciences and the humanities. All these different approaches to knowledge, to knowledge are relevant in understanding the real and human phenomenon of the economy and its sudden and surprising changes. When one reflects that the economy is composed of conscious living people who view their actions in light of stories with emotions and ideas attached, one sees the need for many different perspectives. Narrative economics, therefore, requires concepts from most university departments. Unfortunately, academic disciplines tend to become insular. A researcher cannot know everything, and so the impulse is to think one must specialize, narrowing one's inquiry to the point where one can reasonably judge that one has all relevant knowledge on a narrowly defined subject. To some extent, university researchers must live with this reality, but the impulse can often go too far, and it often leads to over-specialization. When economists want to understand the most significant economic events in history, they rarely focus on the important narratives that accompanied those events. As Figure 2.1 shows, economics has lagged behind most other disciplines in attending to the importance of narratives. And while all disciplines increasingly pay attention to narratives, economics and finance are still playing catch-up despite occasional calls for a broader approach to empirical economics. Nor do most economists tend to appear being interested in using the enormous databases of written words that they might work with to study narratives. When they do use the word in published work, they most often do so casually and tangentially to refer to what they perceive to be a conventional view that they will criticize. In addition, they rarely document the narrative's popularity, convey its popular human interest stories, or consider the impact of its popularity on economic behavior. Finally, the word narrative tends to appear in offbeat or popularizing economics journals. However, to the extent that an incipient theory of narrative economics holds promise for helping us better anticipate major economic events, economists can and should be more learning be learning more about narrative gathering insights by scholars from the fields discussed in this chapter this chapter is an exercise in consilience it summarizes how thinkers in a variety of fields have used narrative to advance knowledge within their disciplines and across disciplines and it provides a foundation on which economists might build to think more imaginatively about narrative epidemiology and narrative. Medical schools have pursued mathematical modeling of the spread of disease epidemics for about a hundred years, making the field well-developed and bursting with potential applications to economics. 
Epidemiology has produced not one model, but rather many different models that can be applied to different circumstances, and it is central to this book, as we will see in subsequent chapters. For those who want to examine these mathematical models in detail, the appendix at the end of the book provides a survey of the models and their possible applications to economic narratives. History and Narrative Historians have always displayed an appreciation for narratives. However, as historian Ramsey McMullen noted in Feelings in History, Ancient and Modern, from 2003, a deep understanding of history requires inferring what was on the minds of the very people who made history, that is, what their narratives were. He does not literally stress the concept of narratives. He has told me that he would prefer a word conveying, quote, stimulus to some emotional response, and there is no such word, end quote. If we want to understand people's actions, he argues, we need to study, quote, the terms and images that energize, end quote. For example, he asserts that it is impossible to understand why the American Civil War was fought unless we engage deeply with vividly told stories, such as the 1837 news story reporting an angry mob's shooting of the abolitionist newspaper editor E.P. Lovejoy in Alton, Illinois, in 1837. This evocative story whipped anti-slavery sentiment in the North to a feverish fury that persisted for years. Academic discussion regarding the extent to which the Civil War was fought over slavery cannot be conclusive unless we take into account the emotional power of relevant narratives. The late Douglas North, economic historian and Nobel laureate, echoes McMullen's conviction in his 2005 book, Understanding the Process of Economic Change, which emphasizes the importance of human intentionality, essentially in the form of narratives in the development of economic institutions. Insights from Sociology, Anthropology, Psychology, Marketing, Psychoanalysis, and Religious Studies. In the social sciences, the last half-century saw the blossoming of schools of thought that emphasized the study of popular narratives. Such study has been termed narrative psychology, storytelling sociology, psychoanalysis of narrative, narrative approaches to religious studies, narrative criminology, folklore studies, and word-of-mouth marketing, among other terms. The overriding theme is that most people have little or nothing to say if you ask them to explain their objectives or philosophy of life, but they brighten at the opportunity to tell personal stories, which then reveal their values. For example, in interviewing inmates at prison, we find that the interviewee tends to respond well when asked to tell stories about other inmates, and these stories tend to convey a sense not of amorality, but of altered morality. Another example, anthropologist William M. Obar and economist John M. Conley interviewed investment managers about their business and found a widespread tendency for employees at the firm to tell a story about the founding of the firm and its values. The story has some common features across firms, and it is akin to the creation myths that, as anthropologists have noted, primitive tribes tell about their origin. The story tends to center on one man, rarely a woman, unfortunately, who showed exceptional foresight or courage in founding the tribe, or in this case, 
the firm. Their narrative tends to revert to the founding father story to justify the many stories about the firm as it exists today. Literary Studies and Narrative Thinking about economic narratives brings economists to a corner of the university with which they are often unfamiliar, the literature department. Some literary theorists, inspired in part by psychoanalysis, the archetypes of Carl Jung, and the fantasies of Melanie Klein, have found that certain basic story structures are repeated constantly, though the names and circumstances change from stories to story, suggesting that the human brain may have built-in receptors for such stories. John G. Coelty, 1976, classifies what he calls the formula stories, with names like the hard-boiled detective story or the gothic romance. Vladimir Propp, in, eight, in 1984, found 31 functions present in all folk stories with abstract names like violation of interdiction and villainy and lack. According to Ronald B. Tobias in 1999, in all of fiction, there are only 20 master plots. Quote, quest, adventure, Pursuit, Rescue, Escape, Revenge, The Riddle, Rivalry, Underdog, Temptation, Metamorphosis, Transformation, Maturation, Love, Forbidden Love, Sacrifice, Discovery, Wretched Excess, Ascension, and Descension. Christopher Booker, in 2004, argues that there are only seven basic plots. Quote, Overcoming the Monster, Rags to Riches, the Quest, Voyage and Return, Comedy, Tragedy, and Rebirth, end quote. According to literary theorist Mary Clages in 2006, structuralist literature theory considers such efforts to list all basic stories as overly reductive and dehumanizing. Although she dismisses other scholars' lists of basic plots, she asserts, Structure, quote, structuralists believe that the mechanisms which organize units and rules into meaningful systems come from the human mind itself, end quote. Peter Brooks in 1992 says narratology should be concerned with how narratives work on us as readers to create models of understanding and why we need and want such shaping orders. Well-structured narratives, Brooks argues, quote, animate the sense-making process and fulfill a passion for meaning, end quote. And the study of narratives naturally leads to psychoanalysis. Russian literature scholar Gary Saul Morson recently collaborated with economist Morton Shapiro in Sense and Sensibility, Sense spelled C-E-N-T-S, in 2017, in which they argue that a better appreciation of great novels which brings us close to the essence of human experience, would help improve the modeling of economic life. Neuroscience, Neurolinguistics, and Narrative Narratives take the form of sequences of words, which makes the principles of linguistics relevant. Words have both simple, direct meanings and connotations, in addition to metaphoric use. Modern neurolinguistics probes into the brain structures and organization that support narratives. Contagious narratives often function as metaphors. That is, they suggest some idea, mechanism, or purpose not even mentioned in the story, 
and the story becomes, in effect, a name for it. The human brain tends to organize around metaphors. For example, we frequently incorporate war metaphors in our speech. We say an argument was shot down or indefensible. The human brain notices these words' connection to war narratives, although the connection is not always a conscious one. The connection enriches the speech by suggesting other possibilities. So when we speak of a stock market crash, most of us are reminded of the rich story of the 1929 stock market crash and its aftermath. Linguist, linguist Paul Lakoff and philosopher Mark Johnson in 2003 have argued that such metaphors are not only colorful ways of writing and speaking; they also mold our thoughts and affect our conclusions. Neuroscientist Ocean Vartanian in 2012. Notes that analogy and metaphor reliably activate consistent brain regions in fMRI images of the human brain. That is, the human brain seems wired to respond to stories that lead to thinking in analogies. Consilience calls for collaborative research. The dazzling array of approaches to understanding the spread of narratives. Briefly summarized in this chapter, means that collaborative research between economists and experts in other disciplines holds the promise of revolutionizing economics. Particularly important are the ideas and insights of epidemiologists whose models successfully forecast the future trajectory of disease epidemics and explain how to counteract these epidemics. As we will see in the next chapter. Economists can adapt these epidemiological models to improve their own models and forecasts. The marriage of economics and epidemiology is our first example of consilience in this book. Thank you for watching. Please like, subscribe, and visit my channel for more exciting content.